The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back to the Artificiality Podcast and our interview with Chris Summerfield. Chris is a professor of cognitive science at the University of Oxford. His work is concerned with understanding how humans learn and make decisions. He is interested in how humans acquire new concepts or patterns in data and how they use this information to make decisions in novel settings. He's also a research scientist at Google DeepMind. Earlier this year, Chris released a book called Natural General Intelligence, How Understanding the Brain Can Help Us Build AI. This couldn't be more timely given talk of AGI. And in this episode, we talk with Chris about his work and what he's learned about humans from studying AI and what he's learned about AI by studying humans. We talk about his aim to provide a bridge between the theories of those who study biological brains and the practice of those who are seeking to build artificial brains, something we find perpetually fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you today. Thank you for inviting me. Perhaps you can start off with um, telling us what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, so the book is, um, it's intended to provide a kind of bridge between two fields, which have historically had a lot to do with each other, but in which there are very different kind of, there are very different ideas, there are very different solution concepts, and there are different terminology. So those two fields are the world of kind of, on the one hand, cognition and neuroscience, on the other hand, machine learning and AI research. Um, and I'm fortunate that I've, for many years, had a foot in kind of both worlds, being a sort of you know, a, a, a tourist in each of them, perhaps not a specialist in either. Um, but I have, um, you know, been in, in uh, the University of Oxford. I run a lab which focuses on understanding human brain. And I've also uh, have a, a research scientist position at Google DeepMind, where I've been, although I'm not an AI researcher, I've been part of work, which is um, kind of, you know, at the cutting edge of um, developments in machine learning, uh, deep learning in particular. And so I've kind of had this sort of vision and I've sort of spent all day, you know, kind of mentally translating between these two languages. And I thought, well, maybe that's something that would be useful for a wider audience. And especially for you know, the book is not, it's, it's not a, it's not an overly technical book, but it's sort of aimed at a kind of, you know, interested audience for, for whom those two disciplines you know, for whom bridging those two disciplines might be useful. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, I found it. Um, I found it a fascinating read. It because um, I'm really interested in this, and I think a lot of people are interested in this sort of mapping of artificial intelligence onto biological and back and, and back the other way. Um, how much is you know when we think about defining intelligence? How much is the each the, mir the using these mirrors? backwards and forwards, how much does it expose how we think about intelligence or um, how we should define intelligence? What does it um, mean to you? 
Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, you know, as I I do say in the book a little bit, I'm not an expert in, um, you know, theories of intelligence. Um, and in fact, you know, kind of, I, as I mentioned in the book, like the, the, the study of intelligence, although it is, you know, a sort of respectable intellectual endeavor within psychology, cognitive psychology, you know, it's also like a very, it's a difficult one, not just intellectually, but also politically, because, you know, kind of when you, Every time you design a test, which purports to be a measurement of intelligence, of course, you are, you know, you're, you're in some way making some assumptions about whatever that term means. And those assumptions don't come without political baggage, right? Not least because the people who traditionally within psychology have built those tests come from certain sections of society. They come from certain ethnic groups. They live in certain countries. You know, they tend to be, you know, like me, white men who work at universities. And, you know, this has an impact on how we define intelligence. Um, and our tests reflect that. So, you know, if you sit down and do a sort of standard psychometric in instrument, you know, and it, it will ask you things that look a lot like the types of verbal reasoning test that you might get if you wanted to apply to, you know, an elite school or to, you know, perhaps to, to some fast track of, or for some professional activity. So, you know, I think the really refreshing thing about AI research is that, you know, it gives us a completely different lens to think about intelligence because those things, the things that, those, the types of skills that historically we've associated with intelligence, which involve things like, you know, puzzle, solving puzzles, you know, playing sophisticated games, you know, um, do, doing, you know, complex calculations or whatever, those things turn out to, to be a lot easier for um, AI systems than things that we do every day, like, you know, picking up small objects or walking across rough terrain. Um, you know, we have AI systems that can solve remarkably intricate reasoning problems or that can, you know, kind of uncover, you know, kind of how to unfold proteins for, you know, kind of um, all kinds of uses in biotechnology. But we don't have an AI system that can button a shirt. So that is a, you know, a skill that most humans learn within the first few years of life. But yeah, we haven't solved it yet. So I think, you know, kind of the lens that we get for intelligence from AI is fascinating. Um, and the other lesson, you know, just briefly, the other lesson is that um, building tests that actually meaningfully measure um, a spectrum of cognitive abilities in a machine is incredibly difficult. And, you know, AI researchers often when they're speaking to psychologists, ask, often ask, well, you know, how should we design tests? How should we design a test of the ability of our model? And this is an incredibly hard thing to do. And it's very hard in particular because there's a principle, well-known principle in AI research is often referred to as Goodhart's law, which is that as soon as you construct a test, in a way, what you're doing is you're inviting researchers to solve that test and nothing else. And so, you know, kind of, we tend to define intelligence as being, you know, the ability to solve sort of new things that we haven't yet specified. And knowing how to construct a test that might actually measure that kind of, you know, very sort of, you know, ephemeral kind of, you know, 
behavior that isn't tied down is very, it's, it's very difficult. We don't have good answers. Does that say something about um, a, a skill in designing a benchmark or a new test that looks beyond what uh, is a one specific skill and is more like when we get move to general intelligence, what's the the general intelligence sort of suite of tests that we um, that we might want to consider that we maybe haven't thought about that it would be different between a human and a machine. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the problem, right? You know, that is, that is in a nutshell, exactly the problem. You know, there's this, there's this saying in AI research, right, which is that intelligence is defined as all the things that computers can't do yet, right? You know, we used to think in the 1950s and 60s that if we could build a computer that played chess at grandmaster levels, we would basically, intelligence would be solved. We'd be done. We could like go home. But then when that was achieved, 1997, you know, people realized, well, of course, we're far from done. You know, there's there's so much more to do. People until very recently thought that, you know, kind of having a system that can communicate in natural language in a way which, you know, kind of impersonates a person, plausibly impersonates a person. That's, you know, the basis for the well-known Turing test. People thought that that would, you know, basically herald the sort of the end of the road, you know, kind of that we were nearing completion. But it's obvious, I'm sure, to everyone that whilst, you know, everyone's impressed by language models like ChatGPT and so on, nobody thinks that they have human-like ability, at least beyond, you know, the certain narrow set of things that they're able to do. And certainly, you know, language models are good at language, but they're not good at, you know, moving around, for example, because they haven't been trained to do so. Hmm. The uh, There's a... There's... There's quite a lot of talk in the AI community and, and parts of the AI community about how um, a language model that, that scale is going to solve this. You know, GPT will be five, will be ten times bigger, six will be ten times bigger again, and then we'll gradually sort of move up the the stack of things that humans can cognitively do. And it's almost like a, a, a bucket; the water's filling up, and we get to the top, and then humans are sort of obsolete. For people that have been in the in this landscape for a while, that's a pretty familiar narrative, and um, we, like you say, we get to the end point and then we move on to the next thing. This time feels a little different. That figuring out what is that next thing is a little bit difficult to to envisage. Um, you sort of run into um, a little bit of of doubt about well. Is creativity or is is the ability to be curious these sort of human imagination traits you know these different things that we sort of associate with being purely human cognitively not not so much spatially but as we as the bucket fills up and more and more more it looks more like creativity coming out of a language model or it looks more like a, a leap of imagination um, there's definitely quite a lot of we encounter quite a lot of fear from people that that's sort of the end of human thinking and we sort of get left with okay well what's left well love and consciousness (laughs) sort of this kind of stuff and and I wonder where you sit in this this discussion about the 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 trajectory if you like of machine intelligence Um, whether it's sitting alongside us doing something completely different versus 
um, gradually catching up and replacing us, the sort of two yeah. dominant ways of thinking about it. Yeah, well, these are, these are very deep questions, aren't they? I mean, you know, kind of <clears throat> obviously the question of whether, you know, you can take a sort of empiricist approach, right, whether you just need – basically, basically I think the question – another way of phrasing the question is whether the intelligence that we were just discussing resides primarily in data or it resides primarily in features of the computational architecture of these systems, right? So the idea that scale is all that matters is sort of saying that what really matters is the data, right? So a transformer is quite a transformer. The, the algorithm on which you have large language models and large generative models today are all based is it's a relatively modest algorithmic innovation relative to what we had before. In fact, you could say it's really just conceptually, it's pretty similar to everything we were doing before. It's just a sort of better parallelization of, of what we did before. And, you know, essentially, I, you know, I think what that, what that means is that, you know, kind of the advantages that we've seen, although clearly the introduction of the transformer is, is a huge contributor to that, they, they, they have come about largely because of the use of very large quantities of data. So it's natural to ask, you know, where does that end, right? You know, if we just have lots of data, then, you know, do we, do we end up, you know, kind of in something that is like, you know, orders of magnitude more capable, however you define that. And I think there's a, there's a few different answers to this, this question. So the first one is that um, th there are clearly many really significant computational components that are present in biological systems that are missing in current artificial systems. So um, I could, you know, maybe just refer to three, like, and, and one of them is only, but one of them will, we will have very soon, right? So the one, the one, the most prominent one that's missing is um, inputs that are not just language based. And, you know, kind of obviously the large publicly available models are mostly chatbots, right? You chat to them and they chat back. Um, but, you know, kind of within tech companies um, and there, there are now even open source variants, you have what are known as multimodal models, which are um, models in which the, the interaction is based not only around text, but around text and image, right? So this is a sort of poor person's version of having like, you know, the sorts of sensory modalities that we have in addition to language. So we, we learn about the world because we can see it and hear it and, 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 and otherwise sense it. We also hear about it from other people in natural language. And so language models are moving towards a, a, a place where they will have those twin forms of information. And that's very interesting because we don't know whether that will have a super additive effect on their capability. It seems possible that it will. So it, poss it seems possible that, you know, sort of vision plus language is more than, you know, vision language model is more than just benefit of vision plus language. Because the model can learn all the connections between sensory data and language and much more. And maybe that has a powerful impact. We'll know quite soon because, you know, Multimodal models. In fact, DALI, um, just recently, OpenAI released DALI 3, which is, um, you know, kind of basically the incorporation of their image generation software into uh, ChatGPT. I actually want, I was hoping to try it out today, but I didn't get the chance. 
Um, it's kind I'm of sure on my list amazing. today. <laughs> I'm sure it's amazing. I'm sure it's amazing. Um, so that's multimodal. That's one thing. The other two things I think are much more significant, though, and technically potentially more challenging. So one of them is a memory. So the models at the moment have relatively limited memory. Um, you know, ChatGPT has, I think, um, I think the latest versions have, I can't remember the exact figures, but basically they have, they can, uh, ChatGPT can take enough tokens that's about like half a novel approximately. So, you know, half of the great Gatsby, imagine something like that in its prompt in any one go. So that's quite a lot, but it's not really a lot, right? So if you think about your memory stretching back across your entire lifetime, <clears throat> and in particular, I think this really comes into play when you think about the interactions, the interpersonal interactions that we have. I think this is where it's most important, right? You know, you can receive a phone call from an old friend and maybe you haven't spoken to them in five years, but you know a lot about them. You can slip back in. If it's a really good old friend, you can slip back into, you know, kind of basically where you were five years ago. You can do that because you have forms of memory that allow information to be basically, you know, retained in, in a relatively well-preserved state over very long time periods. The models don't have that. So that, that means that at the moment, when the models interact with you, they have no knowledge of who you are. They don't know anything about you. So they have no social life. And, you know, so much of our intelligence is, of course, shaped by not just, you know, words and numbers or whatever is on an intelligence test. It's shaped by our cultural values, our social values. It's shaped by, you know, our interactions with the people around us, family, friends, acquaintances, whatever. So that's the second one. The third one, I think, is the most consequential. And that is notion of instrumentality. So in machine learning, we make a distinction between paradigms in which you kind of essentially learn to predict, um, passively learn to predict states of the world that might occur. So we might, you know, show an image and try and passively predict the label. So I show you a cat and you try and predict the label cat goes with this image. Or like these large generative models that we try to predict sort of what's going to come next, or even some missing part of the data. Um, so that's what ChatGPT does. It's like trained to well, large language models in general. The base model is trained to predict the next token in a sequence. But it's not trying to make states of the world occur. So its actions are not oriented towards trying to change how the world works so that a specific state occurs. All it does is tries to predict what the next state generated by someone else will be. That's not how you and I work. So people are also motivated by, or motivated being the key word, motivated by value, by reward. And those rewards um, ensue in particular states, and we try to make those states happen. So, you know, if you want to eat chocolate cake, you try to make that happen by moving towards the chocolate cake so that you're able to do so. So language models don't do that or large generative models at the moment don't do that, or they do that in very limited ways. And I think this is, places a huge bound on their capability because they're not actually trying to make anything happen. So it's not impossible that in the future we will have models. In fact, I'm sure you know, we will have models that have forms of instrumentality. 
But we don't know what the capability of those models will be. So we don't know whether that will make them, you know, kind of more creative or or more harmful, more risky. We really don't know what the consequences of that might be. What's the relationship, just to clarify, the relationship between instrumentality and concepts like um, agency, autonomy, intention, um, acting in the world, are they is is that the same? Is that what you is that a is it an umbrella term for those other things, or yeah, is it a different yeah. concept? People use those terms differently. I guess I mean probably all of the above. I mean by instrumentality, I mean you know kind of the notion that you're trying to change the world, right? That's what. So we do. We use language in instrumental ways too. I mean, it's not like language models are incapable of any form of instrumentality because you know language contains. Language language has instrumental virtues too. You know, if I sort of say, oh, you know, please could you do X, right? I'm trying to make a state of the world occur, right? By asking you to maybe do something for me or whatever. Right? Yeah, pass me the salt. Please pass me the salt. Yeah, exactly. It's an instrumental use of language. But the, you know, and language, because our language contains the, that meaning, that sort of meaning um, or that sort of use case, then so does the language which is produced by language models, right? Um, and we can have debates over, you know, kind of what forms of instrumentality might be, you know, kind of safe or permissible in these models, but it does exist in the data, but it kind of only exists by virtue of the emulation of forms of use that are there that humans have used. It's not, it's never going to try and, and it's never going to use that language in a way which is not in its training data because language models just, you know, obviously they are, they are, they're only, you know, interpolating and or potentially partially extrapolating from their training data. So they're never going to be able to go wildly beyond that in the way that, you know, you might say, well, I really want to go to the moon. And, you know, you, if it's the 1960s and it still feels impossible, you like put in place a series of things. If you happen to be, you know, Kennedy, I think it was who launched the, <laughs> the moon initiative. Um, and, you know, and make the seemingly impossible things come true, right? Which humans have done, not individually, mostly collectively. But, um, you know, language models are not capable of that right now. But they might be if you if you gave them reward functions that, that worked in that way. We just don't know. Hi, it's Dave with just a brief interruption. If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with someone who you think might enjoy it too. And check out everything that artificiality has to offer at artificiality.world. Reach out anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Back to the interview. I find it interesting to think about what those sort of some of the concept of reward functions might be. I like your example of catching up with an old friend. Just did this a couple days ago. Caught up with a friend who has been a friend for more than 30 years. Haven't talked in a few years. Mostly because he's going through what he would describe as a, a phenomenal midlife crisis. But... <laughs> I could share this with him because he's moved from a major city to a coastal town. I have a visual experience of what that big city is like and to some degree what that small town is like, kind of know those. I have this experience of his emotional journey. I have a, a memory as you're, uh, the number two of your list was, you know, the memory of the interactions that we've had over 30 years and I can replug into those things, can remember what those relationships were like and sort of think about them. And in the end, I can have this sort of intentionality about what he might 
want or need from an old friend in a moment? Is it just listening? Is it helping him think through the career transition that he's trying to make? You know, and is it thinking through all the complicated emotional journey of all of his personal reactions? Those things to me are, um, they're individual for humans. They're somewhat intuitive. They're so dependent on the two individuals in the, in the, in the conversation and the context in which your relationship is over time. I'm kind of flummoxed with the idea of how to create a measurement or a reward function that you could even hope for a machine to get there. I'm curious what you think. Like that seems to be so out of reach. Like as you say, we can we can we have forms of measuring intelligence, and I'm using air quotes for those who can't see. You know, um, and and we can design machines to accomplish those tests, right? Because they exist. But we're talking about forms of intelligence that I find to be so challenging. I don't even sure how to standardize a test on it. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we are biological organisms, right? And we are driven by certain biological imperatives, right? And, you know, kind of are, you know, we are affiliative by nature. Um, that's why we have friends. And, you know, kind of it's one example of, you know, where a biological pressure drives our motivation and ultimately underpins all of our behavior, Right. But those pressures come from somewhere. They come from our physical embodiment. You know, we have we have bodies, and you know, kind of, we do things with those bodies. Um, we we need to, or else we, you know, we don't survive. Um, and I think those imperatives, you know, really, really powerfully shape our cognition and you know the ways in which we think about intelligence. And I think you know, kind of, when we build AI systems. It's very difficult, you know, so much if we, as I said earlier, you know, kind of if the lesson of recent years has been that so much of the capability of these models comes from the data, then what it means is that the quality and nature of the data is always going to bound that capability. So in other words, if your model's never made friends, it's not going to understand the concept of friendship, right? And, you know, it can know, it can learn things about friendship from um, you know, come from text data, right? You know, you ask it to give examples of two people behaving in a friendly or an unfriendly way. It'll be able to do that perfectly. There's enormous amounts of knowledge in language, but I think you know, kind of biological imperatives—the imperatives of our bodies and the imperatives of our our sort of social and cultural world—I think those the, the those the pressures that those exert are really powerful and models just won't have those. They just won't be subject to those pressures because no human is going to make friends with an AI system in the way they do with another human. And if we build AI systems, even if we build them to have human like physical bodies, they won't really be like our bodies. They'll be different. They're very unlikely to, you know, kind of really enjoy like, you know, a fantastic, um, you know, spaghetti carbonara is just not going to happen. So, you know, ultimately the models will be very different from us. And that means that their intelligence will always be different from us. It doesn't mean it won't be very powerful. We can already see the power, you know, GPT-4 is, you know, it's an imperfect model, but it's probably better at reasoning than I am at most, you know, over most sort of, you know, if you just give it sort of, you know, reasoning puzzles, off-the-shelf reasoning puzzles. 
It certainly is maths is certainly better than mine. It's embarrassing. It's coding is like way better than mine. My God, <laughs> you know, it's pretty good. But the thing it does, but you know, you wouldn't want to invite it for dinner. Which is actually a, perhaps the right point is we talk about some of these interactions and part of that is based on our, our need to have relationships. So we want, we see someone new and we're like, oh, that might be someone that I would like to be friends with because I get something out of having a friend and being, or if I say something to someone that might damage a friendship, I want to repair that because I want to maintain the friendship because, well, I get something out of the friendship and not having the friendship might leave me feeling lonely, which is a pain that I don't think a machine would ever really experience unless we program it to feel loneliness, which might be kind of scary if it went overboard, um, suddenly, you know, bringing everyone in to solve its loneliness problem. Um, but I find it, you know, one of the reasons I, I find myself going down this path is you, you hear lots of comments about you know, human versus machine intelligence and when we should, there's, there's sort of a, 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 a binary thinking about that. And so you'll see people say, oh, well, the machines are so much better. You know, pretty soon machines will all be better at decision-making than, than humans because they're completely rational thinkers. There's no emotions involved. And so we're just going to have to learn to you know, follow what the machine says. And it's hard sometimes to explain the gap that exists between that statement and what I see as reality. You know, machines can be, as you say, quite, quite great at reasoning, but then there's this other thing beyond pure you know, data-driven reasoning that we need to incorporate in order to exist in our social and cultural worlds. Yeah. Yeah, there's two things to say. The first, the first one is just to, you know, to sort of slightly, it's not that I disagree with you, but just, just a, what, what you expressed, that view, I mean, you weren't expressing it as your own view, but that view that kind of, you know, oh, machines are kind of perfect reasoners and like, you know, kind of they, that's what they do really well. Now, it is true that I just said, well, ChatGPT is really good at reasoning and is really good at reasoning, but the, at least, the, the, the GPT-4 version is, but, um, it's, but, but it's also true that that, um, that view is kind of a little bit of a hangover to sort of 20th century symbolic AI where, you know, kind of, you know, your calculator is really good at arithmetic, you know, and your calculator is really good at arithmetic. You know, it doesn't screw up at least it shouldn't. Right. And that's because it's, it has a set of built-in procedures, which are basically infallible. It's not learned, right? It's just hard-coded into the system. It's got to be right, right? And we have a lot of our vision of AI systems, I think, is still inherited from that tradition, right? We imagine that the intelligence of the AI system is a bit like the calculator, sort of, you know, never wrong, right? But the current generative AI systems are not like that at all. They are actually good because they've learned from humans. And what they've done is they've learned from humans in two ways. So one is through the training of the base model to predict the next token, which is this lot of enormous exercise that just harnesses, you know, sort of, you know, trillions of, of data points. And then the reasons why the models are actually good is because what they've done is then taken human raters and used human raters to provide this kind of additional feedback signal that steers the model towards responses which are more accurate, more safe, and more preferred by people. And so it hasn't learned, and it's not doing the calculation like your calculator. It's doing something completely different. And this, I saw this, this is a beautiful example. So a friend of mine uh, called Tim Keatsman posted on Twitter just a few days ago something which I think he'd found elsewhere 
But it was a it was an example of a GPT-4 answer in which he said he asked the model is 450 90% of 500. So 450 is 90% of 500, but GPT-4 said no, it's not. 90% of 500. And then it did the calculation. It shows you like, okay, so here's 500 times 0.9 equals 450. And then it goes, whoa, hang on a minute. I was wrong. Sorry. <laughs> and so it corrects itself midstream. It's like absolutely beautiful. It's a replicable error, actually. You can replicate it. You can open up. If you've got GPT-4, you can open it up and, and try it right now. And so I think that illustrates exactly the point that I'm making, right, is that it has learned from you. The reason it does that is because it's learned from people. And people do that. And that must have somehow slipped through the feedback. Or maybe someone said, I think that's a really good answer because it's kind of human-like. And maybe one of the raters or several of the raters said that they liked answers of that sort. And that's why it, that's why it slips through. So that's why it says absolutely and certainly and yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it says things that people like because that's what it's trained to do. Um, you wouldn't expect it to do otherwise. But yeah, so so the models are quite human-like even in their reasoning. But yeah, I mean the wider point you're making, you know, I, I do think that there are there are limits that what you know, the intelligence as measured by, you know, those ivory tower psychologists of the, you know, whatever, 40s, 50s, 1980s, whenever it was, those, those intelligence tests conceive of intelligence as if it is like a single, um, it, it, it lives on a single continuum. And, you know, kind of on that continuum, there are, you know, at one end, you have sort of protozoa, you know, then you have mice and then you have, you know, chimps and then you have, you know, kind of as, as in one book, I've seen a, seen, actually seen this continuum drawn in one book. And it says like village idiot, quote unquote, <laughs> Some, somewhere beyond the chimp. And then it has Einstein and, you know, and then far, far, far in the distance, you know, we have AI or whatever. Right. And this, this vision is that intelligence lives on one, on one scale. But I just think it's not like that. You know, the intelligence of my cat it's my cat is neither smart nor dumb. You know, it's kind of both, right? Mm. It's in many ways, you know, exquisitely brilliant at some things because those are the things that evolution ushered it towards being good at doing. And, and with language models, I think it's the same, you know, they will be good at the things that, you know, they, the, the intelligence that they display will reflect the data that they're trained on and the objectives that they're given. Right. It's an utterly trivial statement. But but what that means is that if they don't have access to the same data as us, then they will, their intelligence will be different. And it won't be just like a different point on that scale. It won't just be more or less. It's because that continuum is a myth, right? Intelligence, there are many sorts of intelligence, you know, there are cat dimensions of intelligence and there are human dimensions of intelligence. And there, there are probably almost certainly within humans, there are multiple different dimensions of intelligence too. And, you know, so many that for me, the word, you know, I, the, the book that you kindly uh, referred to at the beginning has the word intelligence in the title, but I struggled with it because I hate the word because the word, the word, it, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a meaningful word. I think it's much more useful to talk about capabilities 
but it didn't sound so good. The title of the book didn't sound. No, well, and people, of course, you sort of have to start with what what the common version of what the common understanding of intelligence is. But like you, the closer it's almost like the closer you look at intelligence, the closer you look at both. AI and, and the human side, it starts to sort of evaporate. So it becomes a sort of this ephemeral concept. And um, we have a lot of conversations about, um, I mean, one of the things that this has done for me over the past few years is make me much more sensitive to different kinds of intelligences in other people, um, different you know, different ways of of sensing and appreciating the world. We have um, one daughter who is um, who has aphantasia, and I hmm. can't get my head around that. I, I just I just have no because I'm completely the opposite. I have such strong mental imagery, and I I find it very difficult to conceptualize of of her having none. You know, what is your? Can you imagine your childhood bedroom? Yeah, can you describe it? Yeah. Yes, I can describe it, but I, I there's absolutely nothing. Can you imagine an apple? Can you describe it? Yes, uh, and to me, that's it's very hard to conceptualize that. Um, I'm much more sensitive and uh, and more generous now with the, the 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 dog's need to sniff everything on a walk drives me crazy. But I now sort of understand it much more, and. I wonder about you've got this great part in the book about um, people, philosophers, and some computer scientists envisaging general AI as an oracle. Like it sits there and it's passively giving answers to questions in the world. And I wonder if that's one way to conceptualize um, the limits of, or the the the, the um, break down some of these arguments about how powerful AGI will be, is you can't be an oracle if you don't experience those different kinds of intelligences, if you don't have a sense of of what those might feel like or how you might respond to that kind of intelligence um, or to a different sort of intelligence. How, how could you be an oracle if you don't know, um, if you can't put together all of those different smells or if you can't put together all of the different spaces that humans experience. And, yeah. and I wonder if this is sort of a, like in this rush of, of hype about generative AI and how, you know, these enormous productivity gains, we all experience that, you know, it's great to do some coding, but it's also sort of ex- real, recognizing that I don't have any great, sense of what it's like to be a an expert coder so I sort of wield this blunt instrument of generating code from chat GPT but I hit a wall pretty quickly when there's real complexity in the coding problem and so that that sort of how do you be an oracle if you don't actually have expertise that doesn't seem to gel in my mind yeah, I mean, I think you know, kind of what you're alluding to is like these issues around we don't really, we don't really understand what sort of authenticity the replies that the model has. Right? There's a sort of there's this there's this great uncertainty over you know how we should because we know the models we know that the replies are quite good, right, for the most part, but we struggle with the notion that they are somehow inauthentic because they do not mostly when you know, kind of, if you query a person, 
the response to the query carries signatures of that person's personhood, right? It, the, the most prominent being, you know, kind of the, the fact that it may express a authentic first person experience, right? Something that you have directly witnessed, you know, if you ask me what I had for breakfast, you know, I can tell you, but I don't tell you because I read what I had for breakfast in the newspaper. I know because I remember because it happened to me. And so we struggle, we struggle with these notions of authenticity. And I think, you know, kind of there's a, there's a feeling certainly among some people, people are very vociferous about this, obviously. And I'm sure, you know, you probably had some of them on your program, but like, um, there's a, there's a feeling that that there will be some tax associated with that inauthenticity. And it's not clear exactly what that tax is. So one way that that tax might play out is that there are fundamentally things which, unless you actually genuinely have firsthand experience, you'll never be able to grasp them, right? And that's what we were just talking about. Like, you know, can you ever really understand what it means to, you know, like, you know, kind of the, the classic example is the, this um, debacle that happened with the uh, Google research engineer, uh, Blake Lemoyne, who, you know, kind of, who claimed that Lambda was sentient after having, you know, kind of extensive dyadic interaction with the model. And, you know, kind of what the model, what the model was constantly saying was like, you know, kind of, oh, I care about you. And like, you know, I care about the world and like, all of these things which were just patently inauthentic, right? So we 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 worry that there will be some kind of like, you know, substantial tax to pay for that inauthenticity. Um but yeah, I mean maybe there are other there are other things. I mean, I think what you you know, you talk talk about you talked about an oracle, you know, I think one thing that we often forget in AI research is that what really matters is not what the model does. Like what really matters is the impact of what the model does on people. And it's interesting because when we assess the models, when we evaluate the models, we don't evaluate the latter. We evaluate the former, right? We measure what the model does. And then we sort of have some cod theory about whether that's going to be good or bad for the world. But that link between whether it's good or bad for the world is typically unexamined. It's just, it's just implied usually by an ML researcher who, you know, let's face it, are not social scientists, political scientists. They're not always the most qualified people in the world to make that link. Now, sometimes the link is obvious, right? If the model is, you know, being racist, then the model is harmful. You don't need to be a social scientist to know that, right? But in other cases, it may be quite subtle. And, you know, talking about whether what, what what makes an oracle a good oracle well you know kind of we've all experienced good and bad oracles um when we went to school you know they were our teachers right <laughs> you know the bad oracles were the ones who you know kind of you know either didn't know much or weren't very good at conveying it to other humans and the good oracles were the ones who kept you engaged all through you know 40 minutes of otherwise boring uh, chemistry right so we, that's an example of where we 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 omit to think about the human the importance of the human angle um so yeah i think that's a i think it's a really good point that's kind of our obsession and it's funny you say about the um the teaching side we've been working uh, a bit in in higher education and of course it's a there's a huge impact on 
on education. Um, um, ChatGPT usage declining during the summer, kids aren't in school, uh, <laughs> expecting it to, to, to rise in September. If our experience of trying to access it is anything, um, kids are using it again or students are using it again. And one of the uh, the, 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 the concern of, of, um, of faculty that we hear is this erosion of um, critical thinking abilities and over-reliance on the technology. Um, and, and in some ways, um, an oracle can, I mean, an oracle, an oracle can do one or the other of that or both, right? You can, an oracle, a good oracle can teach you those skills. Uh, but it's, at the moment, it's very difficult for people to sort of figure out exactly the right place to put these technologies in. You know, what's the right role is it, and what's the right way to measure their impact um, and what's the right way to think about that human impact, especially when you sort of all, you come full circle and you get back to intelligence and you say, well, um, are we making ourselves smarter or dumber? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to point to, you know, to see this in the context of other technological developments, right? So, you know, kind of all technology, one way or another, you know, serves to, it, ch it changes the way that we interact with the world, like phys physically or cognitively. And yeah, clearly AI is a particularly, you know, it's a it's a particularly salient example of where you know kind of we can offload some part of our cognitive capability to a piece of technology and you know whenever there has been an innovation that allows that people get worried one way or another right i mean you know people were awfully worried about theater in the time of the greeks because of its corrupting influence and whatever you know kind of it's like oh, maybe that's not a form of technology technically but you know there's a lot of um, research, interestingly, into, you know, whether people's spatial cognition has been fundamentally shifted by, you know, the fact that nobody actually has to kind of memorize how to get from A to B anymore because everyone has a map on their phone, right, at least in the developed world. Um, so clearly we don't know what the impact of technology will be on um, our cognitive capacity, but, you know, I, my personal view is that that's probably the thing that we have to worry about least. I don't know if there are any examples of where we have built a technology that does something that we cognitively, that we used to do, that has fundamentally made us dumber. I just don't think, you know, kind of that, I can't, I can't think of a single example. Maybe, maybe there is one and I'm just glaringly overlooking it, but I don't think there is. But that doesn't mean that there aren't externalities to technology. But those externalities usually take the form of um, um, shifts in power or in um, shifts in um, economic status or shifts in opportunity. And they very often take the form, sometimes they take the form of, you know, kind of reducing inequality, but they often take the form of increasing inequality. Because when these technologies become available, they're usually differentially available to different people as a function of their advantage in society and the capability that they afford you know tends to then exaggerate opportunities for different sectors of society 
And I think that's what we should be worried about. I don't think ChatGPT is going to make us all stupid. And I think that it's brilliant that you can inform yourself. I mean, what we need is more information, as long as it's truthful. (laughs) We need more truthful information about the world. And we need that to be, you know, available to everyone. Um, And AI provides an opportunity for that. I think that's an unalloyed good. But what we should be worried about is first of all, we should be worried about the information not being truthful, which is like clearly a serious concern. But you know, if we imagine we solve factuality as a problem, you know, what we need to be worried about is differential access. Um, we already have a extraordinarily unequal society, and it's becoming more unequal as it has been for decades. And you know, the the, the risk is that technology will just make that worse. There's also a a risk of how people use the information, right? So what that what that impact is on people. You know, if you go back to the, I mean, I don't remember when exactly in the early days of the internet, but the phrase came out of don't believe everything you read on the internet. You know, especially once any individual could be posting and it wasn't going through what had been considered a, a well-thought-out editorial process to get something printed in the paper with fact-checking and everything else. It was sort of this idea that, well, just because you read it somewhere doesn't mean it's true. And I think there's definitely some, we're sort of getting this general cultural understanding that um, these models can hallucinate. Um, They basically bullshit because they don't really, they don't have a concept of truth. So they don't know whether there's, if you, you know, if you think they know anything, they're not measuring against a truthful source, but they have this extraordinary amount of information reading way more than we ever could. The thing that I'm curious about, though, with this sort of a theme here in the conversation, I know I keep poking at the same sort of concept, but it's this idea that the, the, the models can have, will, will, will have read about um, way more choices that humans have made and the results of those choices than I could ever consume in my lifetime. But they've never made a choice, made a decision, taken an action in the world and then seen the result of that. They've never felt the emotional journey of taking a risk and then taking, going through that emotional journey and saying, ah, I'm glad I took that risk because I like the outcome or I wish I hadn't taken that. I regret this. I'll never feel that sense of true success or regret. And I wonder what you think about in terms of that gap. How important is that? Is that just me having an anthropomorphic view that I think that's really important because it's important to me? Or is that authenticity gap? Yeah, that or is there or is there a real gap in that like lack of true experience of taking actions that we all need to understand so that we understand the limitations of how we interpret the language coming back from these models? Yeah, I mean, you know, the reason you keep poking at the question is because nobody knows the answer, and the. The trouble is that the Darn, question... I was really hoping you would have the answer, you know? <laughs> the, the, the question... The, yeah, I mean, the, the, the trouble... The reason why this question is so fraught is because it goes right to the heart of, like, deep questions about, like, epistemology, right? And the, the, the basis for our knowledge, right? You know, kind of... I think, you know, one of the most damaging definitions in the whole of intellectual Western edifice is whoever came up with the idea that knowledge is justified true belief. Because the equating of knowledge and truth, right, really makes, it really opens up a space for us to kind of, um, 
you know, it, it opens up a, up a space for us to 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 be able to dismiss forms of representation which don't conform to standards which are legitimized by, you know, kind of whatever society deems to be true or untrue, right? Most of which we, you know, don't know most of the time, right? So the, the difficulty with the language model is that, you know, of course, language models have no notion of truth because truth is, truth. Tr- the, the, the fact that some things are true or untrue in language, I'm not going to get into metaphysics, but the fact that they're true or untrue in language is a contextual variable, right? So Wittgenstein talks about language games, right? You know, kind of what we do when we use language is we play games and there are different games, you know, kind of if I begin a sentence with one upon, one, once upon a time, you know that I'm telling you a particular game and it's ve- I'm engaging in a particular game and it's very unlikely to be, you know, kind of something that I'm telling you that happened to me yesterday, right? Because we use those words, That's those, that's a convention that we use to say that we're, providing fiction, right, where our language is fictional. Um, you know, when we're engaging in open discourse like this, I can say things, you know, I I have the liberty to make up. I can say whatever I want. You know, you're not holding me to some kind of truth standard. But if you asked me for a citation, you said, oh, could you just tell me that paper that you were talking about? And I made up the citation, then, you know, kind of that would be bad, Right. So it's fine for me to make up some view and express it very confidently, but it's not fine for me to make up the citation. Why not? Well, because those are different language games. And nobody told the language model that language is a series of games, right? Which must make it very confusing for the poor thing, right? But it also makes it very confusing for philosophers and linguists and computer scientists who want to interpret the output because they're like, oh, you know, it just made up a, a reference. It's bullshitting. Well, it is bullshitting, but it's bullshitting because what it's doing is it's learned from most of human language, which is itself bullshit, right? Most of the time when we make, when we open our mouths, we make stuff up, right? We're clearly, the definition of making stuff up, you know, is is the infinite generativity of language, which is, you know, kind of the original like, you know, Humboldtian or Chomskyan definition of what a sentence is, right? It's like infinitely generative. And we we are making it up, and so the language models do too. So, you know, what does this mean? Well, it means that, you know, kind of we need to earmark where, where we care about veracity because it has the opposite. I mean, my view, this is a very personal view, but, you know, I think we should care about veracity because it's potentially, lack of veracity can be harmful. I don't think we need to, you know, I'm not, I'm not personally a religious person. I do, you know, kind of subscribe, I do subscribe to certain views and, you know, I do believe that, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, that this is a squash ball. Nobody can see it, but the squash ball I'm holding up there. But at the same time, you know, kind of, I think that veracity is important because if you, um, if the information, if information if is, uh, is untrue, so if you have misinformation or disinformation, then it is harmful to society. So I think we should stop worrying about truth and what the language model knows, but we should worry about harms. And one of those harms is misinformation. Now, of course, what's classified as information, what's misinformation is a culturally sensitive variable. It's also something which changes with the political climate. You know, it used to be misinformation that COVID started in China, that started in a lab, and then somehow it maybe became information and maybe now it's misinformation again, but that's an example of something that sort of flip-flops between being a conspiracy theory and being something that is like mainstream belief, right? Mm. So it's very, very tricky to 
sort of, you know, kind of impose truth standards on these models. But I do think what you can do is you can try and measure their harms. Um, and that's, you know, clearly, clearly that's what in the AI safety community is trying to achieve. And that's a very good thing. Um, could they do more of it? Yes, of course. Could they do it better? Probably. Well, I found this to be a fascinating conversation, and I'm glad that you indulged um, us in the unknowns. Um, it is one of our obsessions to continue to dig at the things that we don't know, and I'm glad that uh, you've generously given us your time to talk through that. So thank you very much, and thank you for your book. I highly recommend it to our listeners. Um, and uh, we hope to um, perhaps have you back on at some point in the future when you've um, answered some of these unknown questions. We can, you know, we can find out the conclusion to the, the big mysteries. <laughs> it could be waiting sometime, but I'm. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm, I'm extremely grateful, and I enjoyed talking to you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Stay